Okay. A few Sundays ago, Pastor Mike gave the Christmas story from the beginning of Luke chapter 2. And at the men's Christmas breakfast, soon to be Pastor Vinny, uh, gave us the Christmas story from Matthew chapter 2. And last Sunday, we also looked at the Christmas pageant and the scriptures involved there. So it was kind of neat. You know, we're very festive here. We kind of looked at the Christmas story from a lot of different angles. Today, what I would like to do is take a deeper look behind all the symbolisms, behind all the things that we believe, and maybe challenge you and present to you five truths surrounding Christmas. Now, the way we're going to do it is that when I'm done with the message, we're going to have the Young Adults Ministry come out and do a six-minute play skit. It's going to be really neat, and then we'll wrap it up at the end, and it truly will be a Christmas miracle if it all works out nicely. <laughs> so turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I want you to take a look at the genealogy of Christ. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about genealogy in, in any great depth on a Sunday morning, on Christmas morning. Uh, but I want you to look at a few things, and I want to explain some things to you. Number one, the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 traces uh, Mary, uh, the one who was chosen to deliver Jesus uh, as a baby, it traces her bloodline. And in Matthew's gospel, it traces Joseph's bloodline. Now understand, sometimes we say, yeah, but I thought that it was, you know, he was born of a virgin, and he was. But you have to understand a little bit of Hebrew culture, and I like to throw that in because that was what was going on at the time. In Hebrew culture, the stepfather could take on a great role, really becoming a father of, of a lady who had a child already. And that child would get all of the rights, the inheritance rights, that that stepfather, as he stepped in, uh, he would get that from the stepfather. So Joseph stepped in because the angel told him, don't be afraid, this child is of the Holy Spirit, you know, accept what's, what's happening here. But if you look in this bloodline, and I love it, there's some names that you may run into. Uh, for those of you who are astute in the scripture, will recognize these immediately. But we see Tamar, we see Rahab, David, Ruth, Jacob, Bathsheba, not even really mentioned, but uh, referred to. If you take this all together, what we find is that many of them were rejected. They were ostracized by society. Some of them made a mess of their lives because of sin. Some of them were failures and some were detested. But my God said, that's the bloodline that I want to send my son into to save all mankind from their sins. I want to encourage you this morning because our God is not an impersonal God far away. Our God can uh, identify with everything that we go through. In Hebrews 2, it says that Christ suffered and went through trials as a man. It says in Hebrews 4 that Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses being tempted, but of having no sin. Not only is he God, but he also got to experience what we experience. This is big. If you look at any of the false gods, the pantheon of the Greeks and the Romans, there was such a distance between man and these made-up gods. Some of them they would uh, attribute some human characteristics to, but they felt so far away from their pantheon of false gods. Our true God completely understands 
what we go through on a daily basis. Now, he became one of us to better reach us. The depth of God's love knows no boundaries. Did you know that this says about my God that he reversed the pecking order of society? Again, before he was even a babe in the manger, we can be assured that he loves us and can identify with us. Now, what, what the Father did and the Son and the Holy Spirit in their plan in sending the Son into the world was to bring the standard not up here with the intelligentsia and the elite and the wealthy, but he brought the standard down here. Now, that might sound, gee, Pastor Joe, that's actually uh, insulting, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying that God accepts that pecking order, but what he did was he said, I don't care how low you put people. I am going to reach out to the person that you've buried into the ground, and that's going to be my standard. So I really want to encourage you because you're going to see a lot that you are the reason for Christmas, each one of you individually, because God loves you. So I'm definitely going to hit Christmas, and the, um, the title is not your typical Christmas message because it won't be. Okay, so the first point is that God sets the standard to reach every man and woman. I want to turn to you, or I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 25. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and I'm going to stop there. And just give me an honest answer if you would show by a show of hands. Uh, how many of you are very familiar with the story of Simeon? Okay, not a whole lot. It just makes my point again here. Who was Simeon? Well, he probably was an older man based on what's being said here. And then he just desired to see the consolation of Israel before he died. He was a faithful man, probably not much different than you and I, who prayed to God and God spoke to him. Simeon takes the child Jesus into his arms. He praises God and prophesies. And Mary and Joseph, probably like they often did, the Bible said that they would marvel. They probably looked at each other. They had an idea of who this child was, but they had no idea. They had no idea how big God was going to work in mankind. And they were in the middle of it. Now, I think Simeon is another of the world's unknowns. He's another of the world's insignificance. However, he trusted God. He was obedient. Again, not much different than you and I. And let's see what he says about Jesus. Because God uses him here. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, for which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So what did he say? He said, now I can die. Now, does that sound odd? All the man did was see the, the child Christ, and he says, now I can die. And I guess my question this morning, especially in light of the Christmas season, is does Christ fulfill us like that? 
like he fulfilled Simeon. There was a, um, a circulation on Facebook and in email, and it had this picture, and it was a split screen, and the bottom of it said, define need. How many of you have seen that? Okay, not a lot, so I'll describe it so it'll be fresh to you. Uh, but basically, on the left side was a, a picture of a modern supermarket with hustle and bustle, and a woman carrying all these gifts that were wrapped with Christmas bows and stuff. And on the other side was a bunch of children probably in a faraway country from us, who were obviously had malnutrition and they were holding up their rice bowls just to get a little bit of rice. And it said, define need. During this Christmas season, can we really separate our needs from our desires? Is it all about the gifts? I'm sure many pulpits are saying the same thing, but do we really recognize our need for a savior? I tell you the truth, I do. Now, When he looked at this child, who not long ago was the babe in the manger, he's a little bit older now, he saw, number one, salvation to the whole world. He saw, number two, a light to bring God's revelation. Wow, revelation. Uh, The Greek word is apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse. Pastor Joe, are you going to scare us on a Sunday morning and tell us about the book of Revelation? No. If you really just take that word in the Greek, it means revealing. God is revealing himself to us. And if we really understand Jesus Christ and we have a relationship with him, when we open up the book of Revelation, it makes sense to us. We're not frightened, but we're encouraged because we know where God is going with this world. We see some pretty ominous signs, but like the saying goes, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And when it gets better, it's going to get real good. But Revelation, what does God want? What is he revealing? What is he telling us? Well, we can apply that to our own lives. Questions such as, what does God think? What does he want from me? Why was I created? What is my purpose in life? In the world of 8 billion people, everyone at some point stops and asks those questions. So this is what's going to happen with Jesus. And the Bible is very clear in 1 Peter that even the prophets and the angels You know, the prophets that had gone to be with the Lord and the angels in heaven were so excited about this message, about this Christmas story, and they didn't have even the complete picture. And I could just picture them. You know, sometimes we watch a football game or something, and we're at the edge of our seats. The angels were at the edge of their seats, if they have seats. I don't know. But they saw all these things unfolding, and they were excited about it. And we should be excited, too, because it really speaks to who we are. It speaks to our purpose in life. And that's what we all want, don't we? And third, glory to God's people, Israel. Now, we see some things happening in the Middle East today, but the Bible's very clear. Even though the nations will surround Israel, there'll be a great future restoration. There'll be a great repentance. There'll be a great uh, just coming into receiving Christ and seeing him as their Messiah. We might say, that's crazy. But see, when God does something, I tell you again, he does it big. This is going to happen. This is a future fulfillment. Verse 33, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is designed or destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So Joseph and Mary marveled, right? They see this. But Simeon says a few things. Number one, the child will be destined for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And I submit to you to the rest of the world as well. 
The message of the cross came to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And what does this say? And again, I love this about my God. It says that, Jesus says this many a times, that those who exalt themselves to high positions will be humbled. And those who are ashamed and those who are on the bottom of the food chain and those who are on the bottom of the pecking order, Jesus will take them and he will raise them and exalt them. Isn't that great how God rights the wrongs? Well, we don't see it a lot here, but we will see it. Really encouraging things to look forward to. But the other thing that the child did was he was destined for the, the rising and fall. See, when, you, when Christ came into the world and gave the message of salvation, there's no neutrality. There's no fence-sitting. So we either choose to go with what he says and choose to follow him and have all the, bl- the blessed benefits that come with that, or we reject him in rebellion and face judgment. And that act of a choice leads to the second thing. Because of that, the child will be destined for a sign spoken against. There's a big fancy Greek word. I think it's antilegomenon. And it's, a, um, it's, a, it's an ongoing act, a sign that will be spoken against. So that means that because of this choice, the world has a problem with it. Well, we don't want to have to make a choice, God. We kind of like doing our own thing. But we have to make a choice. You know, in California, I just read in the uh, news that they have pretty much effectively helped to sanitize most of public life from anything resembling Christmas. Great accomplishment, California. But that's seriously, I mean, this is what's going on in the world. Every time... Uh, a manger scene or something resembling the season that actually was, was it put forth by an act of Congress. It's a federal holiday, and they want to sanitize it. They keep going against these townships and forcing them through legal action to remove it. My question is this. If Jesus is a myth, why do you fight so hard, spend so much money, educate so many lawyers, dedicate a life's pursuit to fighting against the myth? I don't have a problem with people that believe in Zeus or Atlas or Ganesh. I don't really have an issue with them. I try to show them the truth, but I don't want to hurt them. The truth is sometimes unbelievers know more of the power of God and of Christmas than Christians do. Amen? He says this, and a little aside to Mary, he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul. And of course, that was prophesied and it came to fulfillment at the cross when Mary had to watch Jesus being crucified. She didn't completely understand at this time, but she would later on. And the third point, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. I just want to turn at just two verses in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and powerful. This is God's word. Sometimes you say, well, I don't, I'm not a good reader. Or, you know, we make excuses Um, I get distracted. When you read the Bible, the Bible's words are powerful because they're from God's very lips to men to write that down. And, And it says that, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked. And open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's that word again, accountability. What Jesus would do is he would reveal hearts. See, the religious leaders at the time, and you know, it's a shame, but 2,000 years later, not a whole lot has changed. They got into the whole pecking order thing as well. They established themselves wealthy, 
aristocrats, um, the, the intelligentsia, and they decided who was going to be important in society and who was, they were going to step on. Literally, if, they, if someone they felt was unworthy would walk in front of them and some of the dust kicked up on these religious leaders, they'd have to go quickly and wash themselves because they felt that that person was filthy. So the truth was going to be revealed. That's why the religious establishment had such a problem with Jesus. The political establishment had such a problem with Jesus. The who's who in society, they all conspired together to kill him. Because he, by his very nature, as the word of God, would reveal the thoughts and intents of their hearts, and they were wicked. They were wicked. Now, I'll tell you how that applies to us. We can't hide in religion. We can't hide behind our denominations. We can't even hide behind Calvary Chapel. The truth is, we all need to have a relationship with the Lord. That's what saves us this Christmas morning. And every morning is a relationship with the Lord. So Simeon's prophecy, the second truth that we come to is, it causes us to make a choice. Number one, it does pull us out of the caste system. As if God was saying, society, don't tell me who I can choose. Don't tell me who you're going to put up so I can use them. I'm going to tell you who I'm going to choose. And today, we look at the Dalits in India in the very strong, staunch caste system. These Dalits are unworthy. They are like animals they're treated in that country. However, they're coming to Christ by the hundreds of thousands. Ask anybody who's gone to India as a missionary. Amazing. God's like, I'll use them. You want to throw them out? You think that they're throwaways? Come here. I can use you guys. The Hmong in Vietnam. Every culture, oh, even the United States, sure. I don't need to say what, what society, how they, we look at certain people. But God says, I'll use them too. I don't need to use you guys who think that you're better than everyone else. Love that about my God. He's awesome. The second thing that this truth does with helping us to make this choice, it, keeps us, it takes us out of this pigeonholed position in society. And it also makes us accountable for our positions. And that's the rub with the world. You know, I, um, a famous atheist died recently, Christopher Hitchens. How many of you are familiar, familiar with him? I actually like the guy. I was sad when I found out that he passed away. You know, he was friends with a lot of uh, preachers, a lot of Bible scholars, and they prayed for him. And when he got into his sickness, he softened a little bit. But I liked him. A lot of Christians, well, Christopher Hitchens, he's... He wrote The God Delusion. He wrote these books against God. I liked him because he kept us on our toes. I think that's very important. And we need to love people like that because you only get one chance at life. By the way, we're going to turn to Luke 15 now for the third truth. And when we look at these truths, basically, I can turn to any scripture. I can turn to the Old Testament, I can turn to the New Testament, I can turn to any chapter in the Bible, and these truths will still be evident. Starting with verse 1. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, meaning Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 into the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. 
I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. This is God's heart. Psalm 23, the psalm of the good shepherd. It's often read at funerals, but when I do a funeral, I explain what Psalm 23 means because it's powerful. It's not just something that we rotely memorize. It doesn't mean anything. We have to understand God's heart behind Psalm 23, and he looks at us like his sheep. Now, for some, that may be offensive, but I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I, I went to a good school, and I think I'm halfway intelligent, but you know what? I can still do dumb things. I can still sometimes think that I don't need God right next to me, and I go off on my own. I get myself in trouble. So God looks at us as his little sheep. Now, at the time, the sanctimonious religious leaders turned the populace off to God. They were poor representations. Now, Jesus' job was to bring those people back to God and expose uh, the false doctrine and the hypocrisy in the religious system. Jesus made clear that those who felt that they had no hope, as a shepherd finds his lost sheep, God is ecstatic when a sinner returns and comes home. So what we see here is that Three, the third point is that God, the third truth is that God actively desires for us to come into fellowship with him. As the shepherd with the sheep, he's, you know, for those of you who t- today who came and said, you know, okay, I came with a relative and maybe I'm going to see, you know, you know, the story, the manger, and, you know, I like that story, it's nice, I like the holidays. Right now you're confronted with the fact that God loves you and he wants you to come back to him. So God actively, the third truth, he seeks the lost to save them. Verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, we need to go back to Hebrew culture at the time. So she had, what, ten coins and she lost one? What's the big deal? Well, understand that similar to our wedding ring, when a a Jewish woman would get married, there would be a piece of jewelry. It was an ornate piece of jewelry that she would wear with 10 coins, signifying that she was married. And this had a great sentimental value to her because of this wonderful man that she just married, that she was going to spend the rest of her life with. You know, God looks at us that way as well. He doesn't want to lose one of us. And as the woman in the parable will stop at nothing to find that coin, God desires for completeness for us to come back to him. So the fourth truth is that God's desire is for all mankind to be saved. That's his heart. Now, let me explain the difference. In, it's not about numbers. The 99 sheep and the nine coins. So the 99 sheep, if we all left the room and we herded 100 sheep into this place, they'd all be going, ah, you know, looking for food and stuff, probably making a mess, moving around. So there'd be 100 sheep. And honestly, if I was to look out at 100 sheep, they're all white, all white and fluffy. I don't know if I would miss if one sheep was gone, but God misses. If one of us is missing, if one of us doesn't show up to breakfast, God knows. And as we would look at that, that herd of sheep or flock of sheep and not miss one, he misses. So the percentage is 1%, which is a very small percent. 
If I got a 1% raise, I don't know if I'd notice much of a difference. If this congregation grew by 1%, I don't know if quickly looking at you, I could figure that out. So 1% is insignificant to the world, but to God, it's very significant, right? Now, let's look at the 10 coins. It's really not the point that one coin was missing. That's why there's only 10 coins. The point is that God sees the completion when all his lost coins come home. So we see the difference in those two parables. Now, some of you may be marveling that God is that concerned with you. I'm here to tell you that he is. And if you have any questions about that, please ask me after service. Some may be backslidden today. Some may be estranged from God. Some may just be unfamiliar with God. But through his word, he's calling you. Now, the most important reason behind Christmas, you might be surprised, is you. Well, what about the babe in the manger? What about Jesus came? Yes, but why? Because of you. This is the only time that we're able to get a pass and say, it's all about me. <laughs> God loves you. He's courting you. His son prepared reconciliation for you and the father to be reconciled. God so loved the world. What is the world? The world is a collection of yous. Now, if you took, take that to the sheep example, you is a female. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on from there. But the world is a collection aggregately of individuals. God loves you. Now, at this time, our young adults uh, are going to perform a skit or a play, a but, and it's six minutes long, and then we're going to wrap it up afterwards. If any of you brought, and I don't really see small children, but um, there's no words. There are some adult themes of when a person strays from God, what they could get involved with. So as a parent, if you think that that might be concerning to your children, maybe we could say it's rated PG. But at this time, um, we need to remove the pulpit and um, let the young adults take center stage. Please refer to the link on our website for a YouTube video of the skit. You know, I get emotional when I see that because... I've been 20 years as a police officer on the road, and I see that. I see what that represents, and I've seen, I've seen the ones that don't make it. So, uh, you know, it's very powerful. And I think you can get what's being said there, but what it is is, is the story of creation. And then God sets us forth as free moral agents to choose him or to not choose him. And the temptations of the world are very strong. Christ is always desiring our return, but he won't overwhelm our free will. We saw that in the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel. Even though God filled him with the Spirit, he rejected God. Even though God had him prophesy, one of the last chapters that we, we read, he still, when he came to himself, he went back to trying to murder David. Um, what's, what the, my favorite part is when she prays, all of a sudden, the Lord holds back all those horrible influences. And the best part, of course, is reconciliation. Now, we love the Christmas story, but do we understand why we love it? It's because of God's love. If we truly understand it, 
then we'll understand in John 3.16, it says that God so loved the world. A collection of individuals, people who think they're insignificant. As the numbers grow in our communities, in our families, and in the world, I'm just one person. But God has the ability to multitask. He has the ability to have a relationship, even though all the chaos is going on in the world. Believe it or not, he's got everything under control. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, any individual, would believe on him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Year, many years ago, before I was saved, I kind of liked the Christmas season as well. I like getting off from work. I like the decorations. And I certainly like to get gifts. But that wasn't what it was all about. Even as churchgoers, we have a problem with, we all talk about it, commercialized Christianity, commercialized Christmas. But the other problem is powerless Christmas. A Christmas where we don't understand what's behind the Christmas story. What's the sense in loving Christmas if we don't understand its true meaning given from God? And the truth is, do you realize this? The Christmas story will hold us in judgment if we don't know the Lord, if we rebel against him. So this brings me to the last truth surrounding Christmas. I had to give you the first four because those were the framework that God built that framework. The first four have to do with him. The last one has to do with us. We also have a responsibility when he draws us with his cords of love. It's called repentance and reconciliation. Repentance just means a change, a change of mind, a change of heart, a turning towards him and stop looking at ourselves all the time and what the world has to offer. Jesus went through a short life, a torturous death, because he loves you. The Christmas story is about Christ, but it's about you. Because if it wasn't about you, he wouldn't have come. No reason for him to go through that. Don't let another Christmas come and go without truly understanding that God desires a relationship with you. And I would just ask you before we pray that you would let the word that you heard today push past any force fields, any barriers, any obstacles that may be in front of your heart. Let him reach in with his word and penetrate with his hand and stimulate you and revive you unto eternal life. Let's pray.